Amen. Let's turn to the word of the Lord. You know we're in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we are at what is the pinnacle of this Gospel. It's the time of shifting and change for Mark's Gospel. He has written it in such a way with such uh, expression and vibrancy to get the disciples called and then to use them in ministry and to impart gifts to them and to show them who Jesus was. Jesus has been working with them to help them understand and identify who he is. And they're a little bit slow in coming and uh, aren't we all? And, uh, but we come to this spot in Mark where everything is going to shift and the final revelation comes forward as to who Jesus is. And from there on, he's going to be heading to Jerusalem. So Mark designs his gospel this way. And he begins this point, this pivotal point, in Mark 8, verse 23, with the expression of the healing of a blind man. He's using this event to let people know the condition and the shape the disciples were in. He approaches a blind man and he asks the blind man uh, if he wants to be healed and Jesus spits on his eyes. Now, I don't recommend that in your healing ministry unless you have his track record. I'd wait before you spit in somebody's eye, okay, you know. But he did, and it's unusual. Before, he had spit in the ground and made mud and put it on his eyes in different, three different ways he healed the blind, and in this one, he spit in their eye. And he spits in his eye, and he says, do you see anything? And the man says this, I see people, but they look like trees moving and walking. And so it's blurry. He, he went from darkness and seeing nothing to seeing light and images, but without clarity. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he could see clearly. Now I believe Mark is using this as an analogy for his disciples. Jesus has been revealing who he is to them and they just don't get it. They don't have a clear vision. They know he's something else. They know he's special. They have fear from him when he can calm the sea. They wonder, who is this man? They see him feed 5,000. They see him cast out legions of demons. They see him walk on water. They see him feed Gentiles to 4,000. They, they are marveled at all he can do, but they're just not fully comprehending exactly who he is. They can see, but it, it's dimly. And how many of you are gracious for Jesus taking his time with us? He gives us a second touch and a second try and another attempt at bringing clarity to our lives. And again, he prays for us till we can see clearly. Thank God for that. How many of you have brought in, been brought into a place where you can finally see clearly in the situation? And God does that for us. And so we come now to the place where everything changes. That place is called Caesarea Philippi. And so Mark says this in verse 27, Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And everybody in the audience listening went, Oh, that place? Now that was in the first century. In this century we're like, yeah, so? 
But if you don't understand the setting, you won't understand the impact of what took place there. We read Caesarea Philippi, and that's just another weird name for another place in town that they go to. But it's very unique. Something happens in this town that shifts everything. Jesus deliberately brings them to this place for the final revelation of who he is. Because Caesarea Philippi is located at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a huge rock mountain that this city is at the bottom of. But Mount Hermon to the Jews is a holy place. It's the place that they believe, according to the book of Enoch, that the angels left heaven and came to earth to seek after women in Genesis chapter 6. They believe that it is the ladder to heaven, a, a portal into the throne of God. And so Mount Hermon to the Jews was a holy place. They called it the gate of heaven. Now, not only that, but then at the base of the mountain is a big cavern where pagans believed out of this big cavern comes the springs and the rushing waters from the rains that are on Mount Hermon down through and out of the deep of this deep pit comes rushing water. So pagans believe that this is the abode of Pan, the demon of the underworld. In fact, they call that place the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. They believe that in the springtime when the waters rush in and well up and stream, and this is the, the main uh, fountainhead that feeds the Jordan River, that they believe that it is the demonic place where the, the, the imps and demons of fertility are loosed in the springtime to bring good harvest. And so they offer sacrifice. They do all sorts of sexual perversions and idolatry in this place of Pan. And they've set up a temple there. And again, it's called the gates of hell. Now, not only that, this city is also called Caesarea Philippi because uh, Caesar Augustus gave this portion of the land to Herod. And Herod built a temple to Augustus for Roman worship. So the Romans worshipped their Caesars there, and you have the Temple of Augustus, where Romans came to pledge their honor to Caesar. Later, Philip uh, became the Caesar and named it uh, Caesarea Philip, Philippi, and that's where it got its name, for its Roman worship to their emperors. So this place is a hot mess of spiritual craziness. You've got the gates of heaven, the gates of hell, and Roman pagan worship. You have the temple to Zeus, the court of Pan, the temple of Augustus, and the gates of hell. All these powers that Jesus has already demonstrated authority over them. He can walk on the waters where the demons reside in the deep. He can cast out the demons by legions. He can heal the sick. He can speak of a kingdom that is greater than Rome and any Caesar. And to the Jews, he is the Son of God who has come to reveal the Father. And so it is in this place that when they get here, Jesus asks them one question in the midst of all this spiritual turmoil. Who do people say that I am? 
Let's take a survey of the general population. Who do you say Jesus is? And his disciples answer, well, some think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, that his spirit now embodies you because John the Baptist had a powerful ministry. That's what some people think. Other people think that maybe you're Elijah because according to Scripture, Elijah's supposed to come back to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's what they're saying out there. We heard them. Some other people say that you're that prophet Moses spoke about, the prophet that was to come to lead the people. He says, okay, that's what everybody else is saying, fine. I mean, if you're going to base your theology on what everybody else is saying in the culture, you're going to be a mess. So he asks the question, it is the question of the hour, it's the question of the day that we live in. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And immediately Peter chimes in and says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Sometimes you need to be pressed into what you believe. Sometimes you need to come face to face with the decision, a punctiliar moment when you will say, Jesus is Lord. Every one of you had to come to that. Some of you are still maybe in that decision-making time. You're going to have to come to answer this question. Who do you say that I am? It's not going to be based on popular opinion. It's not going to be based on the latest poll. It's not going to be based on your mother or your father, your cousin, your sister, your favorite rock star. It's going to be based on what you say personally. Your faith doesn't come from your parents. It has to come from you. You have to make a decision. Is he Lord or not? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. It finally became clear. It finally became known concerning the gates of heaven. He opens the heaven and brings revelation. As far as the gates of hell, he's got authority over the gates of hell. As far as the Roman authorities, he brought a new kingdom to this earth. You're the Messiah. Now Mark is so quick, he's ready to move on from that part. But Matthew gives us a little more information. And Matthew tells us that Jesus responds to Peter. And he says, Peter... He says, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Right? Finally, the clear vision came. Father had shown him in this city and in this place as he spoke for the disciples, you are the Messiah. And then he says this, I tell you, Peter, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this verse is a a bit of a problem throughout church history. The Catholic church has looked at this and said, see, the church is built on Peter. He's the first pope. Jesus said, upon this rock, your name is Peter. And upon this rock, Peter, we're going to build the church So he's the first pope. And then you have papal succession that after Peter was the next pope and the next pope. And so we're going to build on the papacy of the church and that's where it's going to come from. That's a total mistranslation of this verse. Because Jesus says this in the original language, you are 
Petros, which means a small stone, a brick, a rock. But upon this Petra, which is a huge monolith of a rock, I will build my church. What is it that the church is built on? The confession that Jesus Christ is Messiah and Son of God. That's what the church is built on. Paul said, there's no other foundation which can be laid that we build upon. It's on Christ Jesus. He is the rock. He's the foundation. And we are the Petras. We are the living stones that are built upon the rock of our confession. Amen? You're saved by faith and faith by what we believe and speak. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's how you come into the kingdom. That's how the kingdom is built. Your confession of who Jesus is. And I love what he says. Standing before what others call the gates of hell, he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. His church is the ecclesia, the called out ones, the people of God, the living stones built upon the foundation. And he says the gates of hell. Now we translate that saying that Satan and his hordes can't prevail against us. That's actually a uh, mistranslation as well. Because the devil and his hordes were beat at the cross. They were defeated, completely disarmed by what Christ has done. What he's saying is this, that the gates of hell, that should be translated the gates of Hades or the grave. In other words, even death will not defeat the church. We have eternal life. We will live forever with Christ Jesus. There will be a day when death and Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Death cannot stop this church. That is amazing. Now, at this point, once they got the greater revelation, how many of you know God's ready for you to get the next level? And it is at this point, Jesus is now going to turn his sights to Jerusalem to head to the cross. But they have no idea about that. They didn't even see this thing coming. So the first thing Jesus says to them after they finally get it, that he's the Messiah, he says this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And they said, what? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Peter's having a problem with this. So it's, Mark tells us, Peter says, Jesus, come here. He pulls Jesus aside. Goes, Look, I just said, you're the Messiah, son of the living God, right? You said, God the Father told me that. I got it right. This death thing, going and dying, I think you got that wrong. (laughs) Now, it says Jesus looked at the disciples, looked at Peter, said, get behind me, Satan. Get back in line. Get behind me. 
You're thinking like a man. You have no understanding of what God has planned. And you will not get in my way. Get behind me, Satan. Amen? Jesus set his face like a flint to the temple. He was heading to Jerusalem to go do what his father had commanded him. And Peter thinks he didn't get it right. I've studied scriptures, Peter says. I've studied the Bible. <laughs> I think you're the Messiah. That's cool. You're the king. What do you mean dying? What is all this? He didn't understand, did he? How many of you, I wonder, if there's something standing in your way to the destiny God has called you to, it's time for you to stand up and tell that, Satan, get behind me. I'm tired of being blocked by everything you're doing to me. I'm tired of you standing in my way. I'm tired of my stinking thinking about who I am and what my life is about. Get behind me, Satan. I'm going to move forward in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to put up with you any longer. Peter had to get back in line. Do you know how disrespectful it was for a disciple to talk to his rabbi and rebuke his rabbi? I don't think so. Oh, thank God he's so patient with us. How many times have you criticized Jesus? Right? Oh, come on. I do this a bit too often, unfortunately. And who do we think we are? To criticize Jesus or to tell him how he should run his kingdom. Oh, what a mess it would be in if we were running it. Amen? And, and, and isn't it interesting that at one point you've got Peter hearing the revelation from God the Father and at the next point he's acting on behalf of Satan. How many times the church has done that? How many times you and I have done that? Saved, born again, filled with the Spirit of God, yet we do something on behalf of the devil. Shouldn't be, should it? Thank God for his patience with us and his continual training and teaching that he has for us. And now Jesus is going to, from here on out, teach them what it means to be a disciple of the true Messiah. You had an idea of what Messiah was supposed to do, but you had no idea what he was going to accomplish. He didn't come to deliver you from Rome. He came to deliver you from death and sin and the power of Satan. That is a high calling. Now he's going to call them into a level of discipleship they never realized was going to be expected. And he says this. He says in Mark 8, 34 to 38, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. That's important because what he has to say now is not just to his disciples, but anybody else who's going to become a disciple of his he calls them all together and he says this, if anyone will come after me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. That's heavy preaching. We haven't been preaching that in the church for a long time. What we've been preaching is come, have cake and ice cream. We've got coffee and lemonade too. Come join the church. We'll give you some gifts and presents. You're going to be better than you've ever been before. God doesn't want to change you. He loves you just the way you are. You can be long before you even believe. No, you can't. You can belong to a building, but not the kingdom. Because there's one way to come into this kingdom. 
and that is to follow him. And where was Jesus headed? To the cross. You want to follow me? You must follow me to the cross. You can't even get into this kingdom till you die with him on that cross. You got to pick up this cross and die with Christ Jesus. You're to die to self, die to self-interest, die to self-indulgence, die to your own self-superiority and be in Christ Jesus. This is the message of the hour. This is the day. He says, for whoever would save his life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake or the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes into his glory with the Father. Yeah, ouch is right. Because come on, let's all be honest. Let's be honest. That's one thing this revival is bringing into this uh, time and in this moment is pure repentance. That's when you can identify a true revival. The key is Christ is lifted up and men must repent of sin. That is the gospel. How many of us, how many of us have been ashamed of Jesus Christ? Come on, be honest. How many of us have withheld saying something because maybe they'll mock us? How many of us are just a little bit afraid of the opinion of the public if I announce it to them? Well, we always go back to that verse. Yeah, but don't throw pearl to swine. Got out of that one. Come on. The hour is here. We've been talking about it for years. Here it is. God's looking for a people who are not ashamed of Him who will confess him no matter what anyone else will say. He says you must deny yourself. Deny myself. I've been brought up in a culture that says I am everything. I'm in a me cult and there's one member. And I'm the president. And I get paid well. We've all been brainwashed into a me cult, a self-society. It's all about us and our own happiness and our personal interests. But what does he say? Deny yourself. You'll never learn how to love until you give up yourself for the sake of another. You'll never know how to care. You'll never know this king unless you follow him to the death of self for the sake of God. Pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And brothers and sisters, that's what we've been preaching in this church for years now. And this is the hour that God is saying, who do you say that I am? We've seen now what's happening in Asbury, Kentucky. We see what's happening in that college that, that out of a normal daily uh, Bible study, the devotion that they had, the, the Spirit of God had come upon them. They had established prayer teams months in advance that have been praying 
and praying. The night before, those who were involved in their cell groups of prayer came together and said, God said it's coming tomorrow. The next day, the Spirit of God came. They said you could see a cloud coming, and it came over that little chapel. And as it came over that chapel, and, and you listen to the guy speaking, just an average devotional speaking, nothing spectacular. It's not a name, not a famous ministry, not a famous band or music. There's not even much going on. It's a hunger for God. They ended their chapel, and all of a sudden, people didn't want to go. They didn't want to leave. The presence had settled in. And this isn't something you can drum up. I've already had pastors say, let's do what they're doing. You can't do that. It's a presence of God that he brings in an anointing. Now, will it happen here? Absolutely it will, but it doesn't have to look like that because God's got a plan. What God's doing is he's going to universities. He's going to the epicenter where the thinking is being so damaged in our culture through the college universities. He's bringing true repentance to those young people who are so lost to strengthen them to stand against the culture that is just destroying this world globally and he's meeting those young people and that's where we come into play because once they've had that experience of anointing once they've had that revival expression they're going to want to grow they're going to need to be discipled they're going to need to find a church to be trained in and that's where we come in because when it hits Wayne State when it hits Michigan State when it hits U of M when it hits Hillsdale when it hits Rochester, when it hits those kids, they're going to need a church. They're going to need a people who will say, come here. Hallelujah. That's why you're here. Hallelujah. Glory. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. You've been trained. You've been taught. You know how to lead someone to the Lord. You know how to disciple them. You're going to have to get ready to say, come to my house. I'll show you how to read this word. Come to my small group. I'll disciple you. Come, let me pray with you and help you channel what you're learning. And that's what this church is here for. We've got our position in this thing. And I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. I'm telling you, like Elijah saw that small cloud in the sky, and he began to run. He began to run back. And that little cloud became the latter rain of God's Spirit. It's coming. Where's my worship team? Come on out here. It's coming. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.